This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This week, we have a special presentation of CPR's new podcast about one of the most influential people in Colorado and the controversial law he wrote. Here's producer Rachel Estabrook with the second part of the story. Last time on The Taxman, Douglas Bruce was a political outsider on a mission when he led a campaign to limit taxing and spending in Colorado. You can't say you're free if the government can take away everything you have without your permission. That was 25 years ago. Voters agreed to take away politicians' power to raise taxes. Today, Colorado's economy is booming, but some governments struggle to pay their bills. I can't pay competitive wages. I can't buy new fire equipment. I can't pave my streets. That's why some politicians who think government makes people's lives better don't care much for Bruce or his Bill of Rights for taxpayers. I saw this man who had a flame in his eye. He was passionate. He was over the top. And what he didn't disclose to anybody is whether or not you can vote on taxes is the frosting on the cake. The cake itself is full of all kinds of crazy schemes and diabolical plans on how to limit spending and, in fact, to effectively dismantle government. But voters passed it. This is what happened next. From Colorado Public Radio, I'm Rachel Estabrook. This is The Taxman, the story of a man's persistent personal crusade to limit government. In this episode, The Empire Strikes Back. The amendment Bruce wrote passed in 1992, and a couple weeks after the election, he is center stage in a crowded conference room. This is in the basement of Colorado's Capitol building. Fresh off a victory, he's there to explain what exactly his new Taxpayers' Bill of Rights does. This new set of rules for the lawmakers in front of him. They weren't audibly groaning, but you could tell they didn't like the fact that some upstart from Colorado Springs was laying down the law, literally. It's here that it dawns on the politicians that this regular citizen from the most conservative corner of the state has changed everything. After six straight years of campaigning, Bruce had finally convinced voters to hamstring politicians. And every level of Colorado's government, state, city, school boards, would feel it is it's all about creating a little uh, clearing in the jungle where people can be free. If everything went according to his plan, the taxpayer's bill of rights would make history. This was about to put the brakes on big government. When Douglas Bruce recalls these meetings after the election, he can't help but smile. He says he was deferential and respectful. Others remember him differently. He was insufferable, and uh, he was gloating and very, you know, he'd had a great night. He got his mission accomplished. That's Cole Finnegan, the top lawyer for Colorado's Democratic governor at the time. The two met privately with Bruce the day after the election. It had been a big night for Democrats, with Bill Clinton taking down an incumbent. So everyone is exhausted, but not Bruce. 
He gleefully lists off all the things that this new law will require of the governor. He tells them you never get to pass a tax increase again, at least without the voters say so. And he tells them that if government tax revenue grows too fast for whatever reason, they'll have to issue refunds. Finnegan was stunned. No one paid as much attention to the legislation as they should have. At first, the state of Colorado got lucky. In the years after voters passed Tabor, the economy went gangbusters. The oil and gas recession of the 80s was behind them. Technology companies started moving to Denver. and Workers and their paychecks came with them. This was the Clinton-era boom years, and good business meant more tax revenue. And that meant Tabor kicked in, just as Bruce drew it up. His amendment says government could only grow gradually, so lawmakers had to actually refund a lot of the new tax collections starting in 1997. There were huge sums divided among taxpayers. Even TV reporters at the time didn't seem to believe it. How would you like $54? Great! What would you do with it? Um, buy some books. In part, because Colorado's economy is booming, the state treasury is overflowing with money. Your money. And it's coming back to you. That's a young Rick Salinger from CBS4. So Douglas Bruce, the ultimate outsider, became a political celebrity. One poll found 70% of Coloradans knew who he was. Before Tabor passed, even many of Bruce's fellow Republicans shunned him. Now he was the toast of the party. There was not a single Republican who ran for office who did not go sit at the feet of Doug Bruce. Rick Ryder is a longtime Democratic political consultant in Denver, and he says these politicians would meet with Bruce to learn about Tabor and his vision for limiting government. So that he would go forward and say nice things about them, or that they could go onto the campaign trail and say, I met, you know, during the primary and say, well, I met with Doug Bruce and I sat down with him and I understand what he's doing, because that was kind of a litmus test that if you were running as a Republican, that you had to, you know, pledge allegiance to Doug Bruce because he was the personification of no new taxes. And Bruce's Colorado became a shining city on a hill for the national libertarian movement, a prime example of what conservatives could achieve if they limit government and give money back to the people. And voters rewarded them. Six years after Tabor passed, this is now 1998, Republicans took the governor's office and the state house for the first time in a quarter century. And the new governor had been one of Tabor's first supporters. Hey, I, Bill Owens. Hi, Bill Owens. Do solemnly swear by the ever-living God. Do solemnly swear by the ever-living God. Things seem perfect perform, for conservatives in this moment. The duties of the office of... It was not going to end well. Governor of the state of Colorado. Owens was so closely associated with Tabor, he was once called Governor Tabor by a local columnist. But soon he would battle its creator, Douglas Bruce, and Owens' own party, his allies and friends, to reform Tabor. And when the dust settled, his political career would be over. We'll be back after a break. It's The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio.
By the time Bill Owens started his second term as governor, there was no sense that this was the end of his political career. Quite the opposite, actually. My colleague Ben Marcus is here to pick up the story. He's CPR's business reporter. Things were going so well at first that Bill Owens was thinking big, like president of the United States big. People were grooming him to run nationally. I mean, he had been uh, very involved in national Republican uh, politics. He had been high profile at the RNC convention in, in New York in 2004. And so, and that was all by design. It was to, you know, get him ready for that national stage. Chris Castilian was Owen's deputy chief of staff. He still has this signed, framed copy of a National Review cover story. It anointed Owens the best governor in America. Bill Owens was born in Texas and came here to work in oil and gas. The people said he bore an uncanny resemblance to Woody, the handsome cowboy from Toy Story. Smart and ambitious, with great hair, he was destined for politics. He touted himself as a tax-cutting conservative, and he often brought up his early support of Tabor. And I have the certificate signed by Doug Bruce to prove it. Tabor was supposed to force government to make tough choices. But at first, it was pretty easy for Owens. Colorado had one of the best economies in the nation. And Tabor assured that as more taxes came in, more of it went right back out. Owens boasted that he presided over more tax cuts than any governor in state history. But on April 14th, 2000, the music stopped. Everything would come crashing down, not just in Colorado, but across the country. After what they are already calling Black Friday. When the dot-com bubble burst. Investors unloaded stocks today and sent the Dow and the Nasdaq plummeting. It was the worst single-day point loss ever for both exchanges. Internet startups with questionable business models began to fail companies like Pets.com and Webvan, the Nasdaq would eventually fall 77%, sparking a nationwide recession. In tech-heavy Colorado, businesses went belly up. Unemployment more than doubled. And so tax revenues plunged. And things were about to get even worse. Douglas Bruce had buried a provision in Tabor that only a few people understood. Henry Sobinet was one of them, Governor Owen's budget director at the time. Tabor's not that long as a document, but it is replete with little side angles and nuances. One of those side angles meant that Tabor was about to dramatically shrink the size of Colorado's government. The dot-com recession and recovery turned out to be what economists call V-shaped, a sharp decline followed by a sharp recovery. It looks like the letter V on a graph. The quick recovery was good news. The bad news was that Tabor doesn't care about the real world. Other states would keep the tax revenue now flowing back to them and make up for cuts during the recession. But in Colorado, Tabor says government can only ever grow in tiny increments. So Colorado's government was locked in a recession. This was very immediate and mathematical, and there was really no debate about what was going to happen. The formula was the formula. The forecasts were the forecasts. And the forecast looked bad. Chris Castilian says Colorado was going to have to slice into state-funded higher education, health care, parks, whatever else wasn't nailed down. Henry, our budget director at the time, used to always come in and say, you know, we're at the point of basically kicking old people out of nursing homes. And so what do you want to do in order for us to meet the requirements of what Tabor is imposing on us? 
The fix seems simple enough. Ask the voters to suspend Tabor for a few years, not to add new taxes, but to get the budget back to normal. The problem for Owens was political. Tabor had become Republican dogma, an untouchable part of the state constitution that Governor Tabor wasn't inclined to change. Owens knew that his conservative allies would spin this as a betrayal, that by not handing back refunds, he was de facto raising taxes, which went against multiple pledges he had made. Well, we think that's what Owens was thinking. He declined to be interviewed for this story, and we called him for months, never got past his secretary. We've pieced together what happened from interviews with staff like Chris Castilian, his deputy chief of staff. He remembers sitting with the governor in his office one day when the latest, most dire numbers were presented. Huge chunks of state government were now in jeopardy, especially higher education. And Castilian remembers the question that changed everything. Do you want to be known as the governor who closed this college or this junior college? And you could just see the entire attitude of Governor Owens changed at that moment in time. And he decided at that moment that he was going to fix it. Owens was going to ask voters to suspend Tabor temporarily, give the state some breathing room. And while they're at it, tweak the law so that after future recessions, the government could recover. Still, Owens couldn't convince many Republicans to join him, so he had to negotiate a deal with Democrats. They would put a Tabor reform on the ballot and campaign together. Rick Ryder, a Democratic consultant and usually an Owens enemy, was tapped to lead the campaign. A dream team of top Republican and Democratic operatives was assembled, but Ryder admits that it was Owens' support that was crucial. A, a Republican conservative governor coming to the table and making it you know, look like a, a bipartisan effort where, I assure you, two-thirds of the Republican Party were going nuts over this. This is like the worst idea in the world. It was kind of the governor was a traitor to his party. It was that's that's how extreme that they were. And their language was extreme. Douglas Bruce was not happy and he's still not. Here he is talking with my colleague Rachel. Do you think that Bill Owens um, betrayed his his principles? Well, that assumes he has principles. I can't prove what's in his heart. But uh, whether he changed his mind or was bought off or, or what happened. Bruce talks tough, but his political capital had dwindled. He had just won a seat on a county commission, but he had become a big loser on statewide ballot issues. He kept trying to pass measures more extreme than Tabor, but kept losing. Democratic consultant Rick Ryder was often the one fighting these. And this time, Bruce wasn't their biggest concern. Bruce has now lost a couple times on some ballot issues, uh, and he's lost big. I mean, these are 70-30 margins. And so it's clear that, that his blimp is starting to run out of air. And now comes in John Caldera with the Independence Institute. The Independence Institute is a free market think tank. Caldera is a devoted libertarian. He has a gift for sound bites and messaging. I'm John Caldera, adult film star and president of the Independence Institute. As far as we know, he's not actually an adult film star. But when Bruce stumbled, Caldera picked up the anti-tax banner. Caldera was going to lead the battle against Bill Owens and the Democrats to protect Tabor. Caldera also decided that Douglas Bruce would not be the face of the campaign. Why not bring a guy like Doug Bruce more into the fold to work on that campaign? On a microphone, you want me to say this? 
in a recorded way because Doug Bruce has been vilified so much and a lot by his own doing. He does not communicate well. He does not work well with others, but he is a he's a masterful man. He's a good-hearted man, but he is the poster child the left wants to to marry with Tabor. Well, I mean, in some ways, rightly so, right? He did come up with the thing. But they – yeah, he wrote it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, but I like what he wrote too. It wasn't just Bruce's electoral losses that turned people off. He'd made headlines for dilapidated properties he owned. He landed in court over it. He even served eight days in jail for backtalking the judge. In debates, opponents scored easy points by calling him a slumlord. Caldera didn't have that baggage. He was the fresh face of the anti-government conservatives. And he had a powerful argument on his side. Government, he said, has no competition, so restraining tax revenue is the only way to make bureaucrats more efficient. And besides, this tax money would be better spent by the taxpayers themselves. He named his campaign Vote No. It's your dough. Quickly, though, the campaign got confusing. National anti-tax advocates like Grover Norquist had started to try to spread Tabor across the country, and a bunch of different groups descended on Colorado to fight to save it. Our coalition is is your worst family Thanksgiving dinner ever. And so everybody has their own ideas. Everybody has their own reasons for doing it. They lacked leadership, probably because the Republican governor, Bill Owens, wasn't on their side. And Owens didn't shy away from the fight. He barnstormed the state, fiercely debating his conservative friends even cold-calling voters from campaign headquarters. Hi, this is Governor Bill Owens. How are you today? Yeah, it really is. People like Caldera had trouble explaining this on the campaign trail. If reforming Tabor is so bad, why does the conservative tax-cut-loving governor support it? And Governor Bill Owens had a not-so-secret weapon, the Democratic mayor of Denver with a funny name. John Hickenlooper was still a new face in politics, but he had developed an almost cult-like following in Colorado for opposing the sale of naming rights to Broncos Mile High Stadium. The other thing Hickenlooper was known for? His ads. And he'd film probably the most iconic ad in Colorado history for this campaign. It's 12 years old, but it's still up on his YouTube channel. In the 90s, Colorado's economy was flying high. He gets into a plane wearing a parachute. But then we fell into a recession. And then he jumps. Unfortunately, there's a glitch in Tabor that means that money for important things like education, transportation, and healthcare keeps falling. Making the case for fixing Tabor actually hurtling towards Earth at more than 100 miles per hour. And that will help make sure that we all land on our feet. Vote yes on CND. C and D were the official names of the referendums to change Tabor. It was so far from the normal political ad. This wasn't a politician strolling across their ranch with the Colorado sun gleaming off their cowboy belt buckle. Hickenlooper, who's now governor of Colorado, was scared to death jumping out of the airplane, and he vowed never to do it again. But there was a problem with the filming. And as you're coming down and they're videotaping me saying, unfortunately, money for important causes like healthcare, transportation, and education keeps falling. As I said that, evidently my body shifted. So each of the three takes in my three minutes of falling left a part of my face in the shadow. The production crew said if he didn't jump again, it'd be an okay ad instead of a great one. 
They knew what would motivate Hickenlooper. I said, all right, let's go. I'm going back up. The extra take was worth it. The ad got people's attention. It was quirky and it added some humor to a complex issue. The press jumped on it and just loved it for the last 30 days. Rick Ryder, who helped run the campaign, says they needed moments like this. Conservatives like John Caldera knew right away it was a great ad. He's still bitter about it. Nothing beats Hickenlooper jumping out of an airplane. That will go down in history uh, as one of the great political ads in, in Colorado. Sadly, he had a parachute on. Imagine how much money could be saved in Colorado if, if that were otherwise. Oh, well. Caldera was low on funds, and he had to find his own way to get attention. He painted a propane tank like a pig, put it on a trailer, and drove it around the state capitol. We found this news story of Caldera in front of the pig that was meant to represent lawmakers. It's hard to show that CU spends a half a million dollars buying liquor and say that politicians don't spend like pig. It's hard to show that this house has spent uh, $100,000 to Red Robin hamburgers and not say that they spend like pigs. They do. Sure, $100,000 is a lot of money, but Governor Bill Owens was talking about losing out on billions in state revenue, and Colorado becoming maybe the first state to eliminate state funding for higher education if he couldn't convince voters to fix Tabor. But Caldera thought he had something with the pig thing. He remembers that supporters even brought actual live pigs to some campaign events. He admits now that this backfired. I don't think anybody in Colorado sees lawmakers or government as pigs. That might work better in you know, Washington, but I don't think it worked well here. I think it, it, was, it, was a bad, it was a bad decision. He's right. It didn't work. As returns trickled in on election night 2005, it became clear that voters had sided with Owens. With help from Hickenlooper and the Democrats and a few top Republicans, he pulled off the biggest reform to Tabor ever, taking away billions in taxpayer refunds, but saving the state from drastic cuts. Friends, all I can say is how sweet it is. Thank you very much for all you've done. Rick Ryder was in the crowd. Uh, it was maybe the biggest election night party I had ever seen for a ballot issue. This was a big stage. There were thousands of people there. Every politician wanted to speak at the microphone. But it was Bill Owens who had put everything on the line for this. Tonight really is. It's a victory for Colorado. It's a victory for common sense. And it's a victory for fiscal responsibility. Owens had spent nearly every nickel of political capital he had to get it passed. And now he was tarnished in the eyes of national conservative gatekeepers. Grover Norquist said that Owens broke his pledge to not raise taxes and had, quote, slit his own throat. Owens won the campaign, but he may have lost his political future. He never ran for office again. No more presidential buzz. As for Douglas Bruce, he told a reporter on election night that Coloradans had just voted themselves back into slavery by foregoing their Tabor tax refunds. And of course, keeping our refunds was just stealing because they did it through fraud. They lied to people. There's no evidence of fraud or that Owens lied about anything. Colorado was faced with its worst budget crisis since the Great Depression, and Owens followed Tabor's spirit by asking voters what they wanted to do to decide to end the crisis. 
Facing this defeat at the polls, Douglas Bruce knew what his next step would be. The people he just called liars, the politicians? Well, he decided to join them, to try to change state government from the inside. That's after a break. This is The Taxman from Colorado Public Radio. And this is Colorado Matters. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're telling the story of one of the most consequential people in Colorado's modern history and the law he wrote, Tabor. CPR's new podcast is called The Taxman. Here's producer Rachel Estabrook. Tabor suffered its biggest defeat in 2005. In the mind of its creator, Douglas Bruce, politicians from both parties had lied and cheated to weaken it. The law would never be safe at the Capitol. So Bruce decided he wanted to be a member of the Colorado State Legislature. Remember, Bruce wasn't a politician when he pushed Tabor. He called himself an unpolitician, like 7-Up, the Uncola. At first, I thought he hated politicians, but he says he only hates the dishonest ones. He wanted to be one of the good ones. In the ninth grade, I served in student government for one semester. And this was no different except that people were older and uglier. Okay? Bruce was not ideally suited for politics. He's not inclined to compromise. He's brash, unusually frank. But Bruce felt like he could make a difference in the legislature. I understood the process. I knew that it really needed some changes. And I think that there's um, no substitute for being willing to stand up against evil. Finally, in 2008, he got his chance. A seat opened up and Republican bigwigs got to choose who would fill it. Some Coloradans may have tired of Bruce and Tabor, but in his home city of Colorado Springs, he was still a conservative celebrity. Bruce put himself forward and he got it. A few months in the statehouse before he'd have to run for re-election to keep the seat. Bruce did not waste any time making history, but not really in the way he wanted. What's about to happen in this story is part of what Bruce believes is a larger conspiracy to punish him for taking power away from politicians in the taxpayers' Bill of Rights. The incident that we're talking about is known as the kick. It's the way a lot of people who now roam around the Capitol know Douglas Bruce. See, he was known as someone with an aggressive personality, according to Vincent Carroll, who was editorial page editor for the Rocky Mountain News. No sooner does he go to the legislature. No sooner, I mean, within days, right, he, he demonstrates it for all the world to see. It's January 2008, the ornate House chambers of the Colorado State Capitol. The cameras are rolling, and we actually have the videotape right here. Bruce is standing on the House floor. It's the morning prayer, so he's got his head bowed. And there are some photographers sitting around his feet, like in a semicircle. And then there's some commotion. In harm's way. It's hard to see on tape. I mean, you definitely see that a camera has fallen over and the photographer next to it has to pick it up. And everyone says that Bruce kicked this Rocky Mountain news photographer. 
This is hard for me to watch because I've sat on the Col- that very Colorado House floor covering politicians and to this poor photographer is just there doing his job and suddenly he becomes part of the story and decorum on the House floor is, is so important that I've been kicked off the House floor for not wearing a tie. I mean, Bruce still maintains that it was more of a nudge than a kick. Like, he compared it to a football toppling off a tee as opposed to kicking a field goal. But his explanation didn't really move anyone. Commentators and editorial writers savaged him. Bruce isn't just a sideshow. He may be a freak show, self-righteous and arrogant. The photographer's boss said Bruce assaulted him, and they complained to House leadership. Bruce didn't apologize, so a vote is held to censure him. Before that, Bruce stands up in front of his colleagues on the House floor and gives a rambling defense. Here is the best part. One of my favorite movies from 1939 is called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think many of you have seen it. A freshman legislator goes to the Capitol. He is set up and provoked by the press. But even most of his fellow Republicans couldn't sympathize with him, like Representative Al White. Uh, Representative Bruce, you're not Jimmy Stewart. This is not a 1939 movie. This is today. Your actions were wrong. The censure vote was 62 to 1. Bruce would be the first and so far only member of the state legislature to be censured, something he says to this day that he's not embarrassed about. And I am the only person in the history of Colorado to be censured by the legislature. The only person in 140 years. Does that make you proud at all? Yes. Really? Of course. I I considered it's a badge of honor because these people were so saturated with corruption that they would do that. Both parties. But Vincent Carroll, the former news editor, says Bruce alienated himself at the Capitol. Sure, he had a past. He'd run into troubles before with his properties in Denver, accused of being a slumlord. But in those cases... You didn't necessarily know how to, what, who to believe. You knew the powers that be hate Doug Bruce. It was just remotely conceivable that they were out to get him, right? It was remotely conceivable. So you, you, you might be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But when it came to the incidents at the legislature, it was unfiltered. Nobody was telling you what to think. He did it. And it was crazy. It started with the kick. And then during debate a couple months later on a bill about a guest farm worker program, Bruce made an inflammatory comment about Mexicans. It started with a squabble with the bill's sponsor on the House floor. I would ask you to read the bill, Representative. Thank you. I have read the bill twice. The more I read it, the more I dislike it. I would like to have the opportunity to state at the microphone why I don't think we need 5,000 more illiterate peasants in Colorado. Representative Bruce, you are no no longer recognized in the well. The representative chairing the debate orders Bruce to leave the podium. Then she pauses, still processing what she just heard about illiterate peasants. How dare you? Provoking people was a great tactic for Bruce when he was an outsider running ballot campaigns with his own money. But inside the legislature, it was toxic. By this time, members of Bruce's own party were looking to get rid of him. They recruited a political newcomer, an Iraq war veteran named Mark Waller, to run against Bruce in the primary. Waller won easily. 
you know, I kind of joked coming into the state house that I was, um, you know, one of the the more well-known uh, brand new freshman legislators ever, not because it was me, but because I beat Doug Bruce. Bruce had done more to influence state politics than almost anyone else in the last quarter century, but he couldn't survive a full term in the state house. Yet none of this appears to bother him. I, I don't mind being a pariah. I want to do what's right. I'm, I, if, if I had a choice of being silent and living another 10 years or telling the truth and living another 10 days, I'll take the 10 days. And see, there's more important things in life than getting along with everybody, making money, being popular. Sure, but who doesn't mind being a pariah? Bruce's time at the Capitol made public, on a much bigger stage, what people who followed Tabor already knew, that he's better off attacking the system from the outside. So that's what he went back to doing. He had his work cut out. Tabor had suffered its most significant setback ever with the support of the most powerful Democrats and Republicans. And the attacks would keep coming against Tabor and against Bruce himself. He is instrumental, not alone, but instrumental in in passing one of the most consequential amendments in Colorado history. Uh, And he ends up descending into a, a, a series of disgraces. Next time on The Taxman, Bruce finds himself raking gravel in a Colorado prison yard. It's another twist in what he says was retribution for the taxpayer's Bill of Rights. While across Colorado, the fight continued to weaken Tabor. The Taxman concludes on Colorado Matters tomorrow, and today's show will be back after a break. This is CPR News. Stay with us. They've been called Colorado's first jam band and were destined to become huge stars. In the 1970s, a group of young, long-haired musicians gathered in the mountains of Colorado. They lived in school buses, cabins, an old donut truck, and even a few teepees. And although the self-proclaimed hippie group Magic Music never released a single album and broke up in 1976, they were very well known in music venues around Denver and Boulder. The band did reunite and release their first and only album called Magic Music last year. That journey is the focus of a new documentary that's out now. I spoke to one of the group's founding members, Chris Daniels, last December. He's also an artist, assistant professor rather, at the University of Colorado in Denver. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great to be back here, my friend. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit uh, from this new Magic Music album. The song is called Bright Sun, Bright Rain.
when you're performing in Boulder and Denver in the 1970s, you attracted huge crowds, yeah. and people may still remember you playing the second and third annual uh, Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Right. People clearly had a desire for your music. Why didn't you make an album before now? Well, it's kind of a long story. We kept trying. We um, uh, Barry Face sent us out to New York City. He's the Denver promoter. Right, the old Denver promoter. We played out there, and one guy was at the Village Gaslight, and he wanted us to stand up because we all sat down and add drums and all of that kind of stuff and uh, we didn't want to change that way um, so we added a drummer <laughs> of course he played tabla not what they had in mind <laughs> and um, <clears throat> then uh, other trips we went out to Nashville the guy in Nashville who was going to sign us actually was list- recording the band underneath the table trying to steal the tunes and wanted to steal the publishing so that didn't work out went to Los Angeles Asylum offered us a deal, but they wanted us to add drums and strings and do everybody else's songs, a bunch of other songs, not our own stuff. And then finally, we got a, a, um, a real live offer from Rounder Records subsidiary called Flying Fish, uh-huh. and we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> so you really, it wasn't because you didn't want to have no, a hit No, we would have loved to have gotten a record out. It was just the... You know, we we really weren't interested in in changing the way that we weren't listening to radio. We weren't listening to other things going on, and so it was it, it was very insular music. You lived in teepees, as we heard. You lived <laughs> yes. in a school bus. You yep. lived in you know their ice cream trucks or things. I'm just yeah. you know, what was it like back then living? in Boulder like that? Well, we started out, the band started out in El Dorado Canyon, and uh, the founder of the band, Lynn Flatbush Poyer, and George Toad Cahill met up with a crazy guy from Martha's Vineyard, Will Lucky, and uh, they all got together and started writing songs, and it was one of the coldest winters in Colorado. So you were in these tin cans, which is a school (laughs) bus, be sleeping soundly, and the fire goes out in the middle of the night, and you wake up in the morning because of your breath, you create a cloud. So it's snowing inside (laughs) the bus. (laughs) Now, the music on this new album is, in fact, music that you played back then, right? Yeah, it was the songs that were written then, and one of the dear friends of the band, Tim Goodman, who is a part of the Denver scene, um, had an incredible career with Southern Pacific. Um, He was a friend of the band. He and Will were childhood friends. And we started working on the record, and he said, boy, I'd love to help, and let me come in and do some production, and really took over in the producing and brought in lots of wonderful people, um, people that he knew, um, chance encounters, Scarlett Rivera from Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review, it was they were sitting talking at Fred Wallachie's music store and said, well, how about coming and playing some tracks? Well, let's hear another song. This is Bring the Morning Down. Bring the morning down. It, it sounds like you could have written that in the mountains outside of Boulder. <laughs> 
That's that's one of Willie's tunes. That's one of the great tunes that he brought to it. Why now? Why so long after you break up? You broke up in 1976. Right. And you could have gotten together multiple times before now. Well, we, we stayed together as friends. We followed each other's career. Obviously, I, you know, I toured around and eventually started Chris Daniels and the Kings and, mm-hmm. you know, been doing that for years. And, um, and you we'll, teach at CU Denver. Yes, I teach at CU Denver, which is really funny. I walked in here and I saw three of my students who were down at open air. Um, and so I, I, I love seeing my students. And let's just keep running across <laughs> them. So it was great. And um, but we stayed in touch, and our old mon- manager uh, Sloth started doing reunions. So we started playing at the reunions, and I got very sick in about 2010. I mm. uh, was diagnosed with leukemia, and thanks to a bone marrow transplant from my sister, I'm sitting here talking to you. And afterwards, they figured, okay, that was a close call. So we got together and did a reunion at Swallow Hill. And um, we did the reunion, and the day after that, I said, let's go into the studio. So we st- because we wanted to capture those tunes. So we started working on it then. As I said, Timmy got involved and, and brought his expertise to it and really took the tunes that were of an era and tried to make them feel universal. So that, And they really do. I mean, you listen to these songs and they have that 70s exuberance, but they also have a modern sound to them. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're talking with Chris Daniels, one of the founding members of the Colorado jam band Magic Music. Is it hard finding that groove again that you had back in... Oh, no. That's the funniest part about it. As long as we don't think about the parts, we can play them. But if you start thinking, now, what was it that I play? It's gone. But it's, there's a, a motor memory that's there because we, we toured a lot for six years. We, you know, in Minneapolis and Phoenix and Los Angeles, all over the place and these school bus traveling around. So we played a lot and we lived together at the time. The hardest thing for this album, really, and the hardest thing for us now is that, you know, we have people living on Martha's Vineyard and Alabama and Los Angeles. And it's really hard to get us all together. Well, we, we did speak to one of the founding members, uh, Will Lucky, who Good. you mentioned, uh, and, and we asked him about getting the group back together. I can say pretty definitively that it is magic music, because we took three years, or at least three years, to put it all together, and because of the time of youth when we wrote some of that stuff, especially being myself and Chris are the writers of most of it, um, some of the stuff that that was written was pretty wild, pretty euphoric, you know? (laughs) We went in and tried to change a few things around to make it a little more grown up, I guess would be the way to go. And it became apparent that you can't change anything in those snapshots. Those are songs pretty much like, just like we wrote them. And, and you're laughing. Oh, uh, I am. <clears throat> but you, you seem to agree with that, that you totally. can't change what you wrote back then because it is a snapshot of, of that time in your life. No, and we tried to change lyrics and, and you know, the arrangements were fun. It was Tim really helped with that with, you know, okay, let's let's think about here. But it's it's the essence of those songs. How do you measure success uh, today with this music? Because, like you say, it is kind of from a different era. Well, you know, at CU Denver, I'm teaching music business. So a lot of, I've been sort of the consultant for the band on that. And so a lot of what success is now 
And especially for us, it's just getting this out. And that's the lovely thing, the access to the marketplace. I mean, my students talk about it as, look, we can get right to the marketplace. There isn't Warner Brothers or Asylum Records standing in the way. You can do this the way you want and get it right to the marketplace. So success for us is literally getting this out. And every piece above that is truly magical. Sorry about the pun. But <laughs> pun intended. Yeah, yeah pun intended. <laughs> Has your audience diversified? <clears throat> Yeah, well, that's the fun thing. We have this ancient old crowd of wonderful old magic music fans and hippies. <laughs> and then we've got an entire new generation that's finding this music the same way as they're finding LPs. You know, the young people are the people who are buying vinyl. And they're going, there's something, you know, I could set down the cell phone, I open this double album, I put it on the record player, and I have to turn it over. And there's something that with that ritual that they find, they also find in this music. So my students are going, dude, this is great. <laughs> so it is, is, is social media, though, playing a, 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 <clears throat> a part huge in this? part of it. Yeah. We've got um, magicmusicband.com. And of course, Facebook is the same thing. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's a huge part of it. Not only do you have this album, uh, this vinyl album, as well as uh, MP3 downloads and things like that, but there's also a film in the works as <clears> well, right? Yeah. Um, that's That was one of those serendipitous things. Literally, I uh, got an email from a guy and he said, uh, I'd, I'd be really interested in, in meeting with you because I was a fan of magic music. Turns out that uh, his name's Lee Aronson. If you ever watch Two and a Half Men, right at the beginning, you see Chuck Lorre and Lee yeah. Aronson. He created that. And he'd been seeing Bring the Morning Down to his kids. And in true folk tradition, he didn't have a recording of it. So he just sort of remembered the words, and that was the lullaby he sang to his kids. And he said, well, I want to do a documentary. So he started that about a year and a half ago. It'll probably be released sometime in 2018. Um, and the title of the film is <clears throat> Everything is Floating. Everything is Floating. <laughs> and it's from the song The Cosmic Jingle. <laughs> yes, that's true. Here's this. Everything is floating and everyone is free. There's nothing I can call mine because everything is me. And don't you try to hold on to anyone you know Feel the light within you Let your changes All oh, your changes All those changes It's got that psychedelic Beatles within you without yeah. you, doesn't it? Yeah. So this far on, you're a teacher now at CU Denver. Do you catch a lot of grief about, about that from your fellow musicians in the past? Like, yeah, you sold out your teacher now? <laughs> no, actually, I think they all want my job. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that you will. I believe. I believe that you will. I spoke to Chris Daniels, one of the founding members of the band Magic Music, late last year. They recently released their one and only recording of the same name, and a documentary about their journey has just been released. That's Colorado Matters for today. Music for the Taxman, our podcast heard earlier in the show, came from Rumteen Abloui. Part three, the conclusion of the story, is tomorrow. Thanks for listening. This is CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. <laughs>